Uh, I was at a wedding reception uh, some time ago, uh, a reception that I had taken the wedding of, and a guest uh, came up to me, shook me by the hand and greeted me warmly and said, that was a great wedding, but I really didn't like the bit about the bride obeying. Uh, Some of my clergy friends have told me that they've been in similar situations, only worse. Uh, One of my friends thought that he was going to be um, seriously laid into over that whole issue of uh, submission and obedience. You see, for some people it seems the command here in chapter 5 verse 22 for wives to submit to husbands uh, engenders such negative feelings. Uh, But I find that's often because it's it's not properly understood. Uh, For the Christian... This passage declares the most profound and wonderful truths. Now, before we look at the detail, grab hold of the, the big picture, and if you are following on the, uh, the handout, then here's the first point, marriage, the big picture. And to get the big picture, look at verse 32. Paul writes right at the end of this passage, this is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. Now, if you've been reading through this, when you come to verse 32, you could easily be excused uh, to stop there and say, hang on, Paul, Christ and the church, I thought you were talking about uh, a marriage between a man and, and a woman. Now, of course, that is what Paul is talking about, but as we look closely back through the verses, it becomes abundantly clear that all the way through, Paul has been talking about Christ and the church. Now, look at verse 23. A husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. Now verse 24, now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives and so on. Now verse 25, husbands love your wife just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church. And there again in verse 29, after all no one ever hated his own body but he feeds it and cares for it just as Christ does the church. See, throughout this section, Paul is talking about Christ and the church. And that is no surprise, really. The entire letter, the entire book of Ephesians, is about Christ and the church. And so Paul is saying here, do you want to know about this relationship between Jesus and his people? Then look at the relationship between a husband and a wife. Uh, Following Jesus, you see, is not a a religion, but a relationship. Now, many of you will have heard that being said uh, here in this church many times before. You may well have heard it before, but I've had many people ask me, what does that actually mean? And not only unbelievers, but Christians have asked me, what does it mean to have a relationship with Jesus Christ? Well, look, here's the answer. Look at a good Christian marriage. That is the relationship we're to have with Jesus the most intimate relationship that anyone can know. A relationship where you are loved unconditionally, where someone knows you warts and all and they still love you. That is one of the great joys of marriage, isn't it? Caroline knows all my faults and there are many of them and yet she loves me still. Uh, Caroline knows my history, the mistakes I've made in the past and there are many of them and some really very significant and she loves me still. Caroline experiences the times that I blow it in the present and still she stays with me. Now that is how it is with Jesus. It is a totally secure relationship. If you're not yet a committed Christian, thank you for coming this morning. Uh, Maybe you've just turned up out of the blue. It's great you've come. Uh, We want to say you're in a safe place. Uh, It might be that you're not a committed Christian and you've been coming for years. Well look... uh, 
I hope if that's you, this is massively revealing for you. Following Jesus is not about following a set of rules and regulations. It's not about dead, boring religion. Following Jesus is about being in the closest of relationships with the creator of the universe. Uh, For those of us in a Christian marriage, do you see how exciting and challenging this is? My relationship with Caroline is meant to declare to the world the relationship between Christ and his people. That is actually why the Lord God made marriage as a a visual aid to the world of what a relationship with the living God looks like. And that, of course, is why I'm to cherish my marriage and indeed why it is godly to invest in my marriage. And as we get this big picture, we see here is why God hates divorce, as I've printed on this sheet here in in Malachi chapter 2, verse 16. If the relationship between a husband and his wife is to declare to the world the relationship between Jesus Christ and his people... How terrible it is when it ends in divorce because that is declaring to the world Jesus can't be trusted. He may well just give up on you. When the going gets tough and she's not all you hoped she would be, to divorce is to say Jesus can't be trusted to stick with you uh, through thick and thin. And that is an outrageous thing to say to the world and that is why divorce is simply not an option for the Christian. And similarly here, why adultery in Christian marriage is so dreadful. Now, of course, adultery is dreadful in any marriage. Uh, Adultery hurts people. But for a Christian marriage, not only does it hurt others, it says to the world, Jesus Christ isn't faithful. He'll go off with other lovers. He'll cheat on you. He'll lie. He'll hurt you like you've never been hurt before. You see, married Christian couple, when you see what marriage really is all about here in Ephesians chapter 5, that your marriage is to declare to the world the wonderful relationship between Jesus Christ and his church, well then you'll want to invest in your marriage. To make it shine out to the world. So that people who aren't yet believers can look at your marriage and say, so that's what it is to be in a relationship with Jesus Christ. I'd like a slice of that. Uh, Since we've had children, one of our prayers has been that Susanna, Bethan and Joshua, when they bring their little friends home from school, their friends would see something different in our home and our family and our relationship. Now, of course, I don't expect eight-year-olds to say, do you know, there's there's something about Mr. and Mrs. relationship. It seems to reflect the great theological truth of the relationship between uh, Christ and the church. I'm not expecting them to say that, but but we pray they would like what they see. And so I unashamedly spend my day off with Caroline. It is not a sacrifice for me to spend time with her. It's not difficult for me to spend time with her. I love Caroline and I love spending time with her. But it is crucial that I do spend time with her if our marriage is going to reflect the great truth of this and indeed be a visual aid to the world of the greatest relationship that everyone can have. So married Christian couple here, How's it going in your marriage? Are you making it a priority to spend time with one another? We're all busy. Uh, Some of you are extremely busy and you may have to cut corners in places. Do not cut corners with your marriage. Let me say to those of you who um, have been married and uh, you're now some way on in years, you don't expect ever to be married again, what does this have to say to you? Will you pray for marriages? Will you pray that they would be faithful? And can you, because you've been through marriages and the ups and downs and the joys as well, can you get alongside other men and women and help them?
See, this has something to say to you as well. And then it says to something to the single, who, single person who longs to be married, perhaps the younger person who's, who's never been married and, uh, and would love to be. Now look, I know there are single Christians who are happy in their singleness, who have the gift of singleness, that's terrific. But for those who long to be married, let me encourage you to have this big picture in your mind as you think about it. The Bible is very positive about marriage. And indeed, you should be affirmed in a desire to be married. It's a good thing to want. But remember this, marriage is never meant to be an end in itself. Marriage is always meant to point to the bigger and more significant relationship between Christ and his people. Indeed, marriage is not where you find wholeness or completeness or significance. That is true, of course, not only for the single person who looks forward to marriage, but also for the person in a marriage. If we try to make marriage the place of wholeness, significant completeness, then you are sure to wreck marriage because marriage cannot bear that. It is too big a burden for marriage to bear. You will only find your significance and your wholeness and your completeness in Jesus. So don't make marriage the ultimate thing. And uh, single person, when you do marry, make sure you marry well. So that your marriage reflects this wonderful relationship between Christ and the church. Look for the qualities that we'll see here in this passage in a future partner. And while you patiently wait, make sure you develop these qualities in yourself so that you'll be a good spouse. So then, the big picture, verse 32. It's a profound mystery, but marriage is to reflect the relationship between Christ and the church. Well, from the big picture to the details, and uh, if you're still following on the, uh, on the handout, then over the page, the second point, marriage, the details. Are the details are, 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 are of submission and love. And immediately we come to this area of controversy, of confusion, of misconception. Verse 22, wives, submit to your husbands. Let me uh, try and say that that I think biblical submission is is regularly uh, misunderstood. Let me take you back about 35 years. Uh, It's about 4.40 on a Saturday afternoon. And if you're with me at 4.40 on a Saturday afternoon 35 years ago, then I'm watching World of Sport with Dickie Davis. And for about 10 minutes before the football results come on through the video printer, which is actually why I'm watching it, We're watching, do you remember it? The wrestling with characters like Big Daddy and Giant Haystacks. Do you remember them? And do you remember how every bout began with the referee announcing that the contest would be won by three falls or a submission? Before I became a Christian, that was my understanding of submission. Submission is something you're forced to do by someone bigger than you, fatter than you and uglier than you. So when you finally say, I submit, it's the reluctant cry that a bully has extracted from his victim. Now, if that's your understanding of the word submit, then of course you'll be outraged by this. Because to you, verse 22 reads, wives, give in to a bully that's bigger than you, fatter than you, and uglier than you. Even if he is, that's not the point. No, to understand this, come, come back with me to, to, to 1 Peter chapter 3, um, and we'll dispel some of these misunderstandings. Page 1219, page 1219, 1 Peter chapter 3. And as you find this page, here we'll see what submit does not mean and here we'll see that submission is not, is not dominating an inferior member of the human race. That is Taliban, not Christian. 
1 Peter chapter 3, verse 1. Wives, in the same way, be submissive. Here it is, it's the same sort of thing, although here he happens to be talking to wives who are married to uh, unbelieving husbands. But still, notice the four words. Wives, in the same way. In the same way as what? Well, in the same way as what we've just seen. We have to look back at the end of chapter 2 to see in the same way. In the same way as Jesus. Jesus is to be our supreme example. We're to follow in his footsteps, it says in chapter 2, verse 21. So we're to look at Jesus the way he submitted in order to understand what submission actually is. So how did Jesus submit? Well, we see it in verse 23. Jesus submitted as men nailed him to a cross. See it there, verse 23? When they hurled their insults at him, he didn't retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. He submitted to them. But here's the crucial point. As cruel, wicked men were crucifying Jesus, he was not inferior to them. Of course he wasn't. Submission then is not inferiority. And secondly, you see, Jesus submitted to his father in verse 23. See, at the end of the verse, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly, the father. Uh, but even though he entrusted himself to him who just, ju- judges justly, even though he submitted to the father, still, that is not a mark of inequality because the Bible tells us that Jesus is equal with the father, fully God. Submission is not inequality. And as Jesus submitted uh, to, to, uh, to the cross, he didn't do it out of weakness either. Do you remember in Matthew chapter 26, verse, verse 53, Jesus, we're told, had legions of angels at his disposal. He could have, at any point, called down those angels to come off the cross. He wasn't weak. It wasn't as if he had no choice. And you see, I find that wonderfully helpful. Looking at Jesus helps to to see that Christian submission is not weakness, it's not in in inferiority, and it's not inequality. Very important for women to hear, and indeed for men. So positively, what is it to submit, and why are we told to do it? Well, come back with me now to Ephesians uh, chapter 5. And uh, have a look at verse 31 as we try to unravel what this is all about. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 31. Paul writes, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Now, Paul is quoting from Genesis chapter 2, and as soon as you see that, you begin to realise that behind all that Paul writes in Ephesians 5, he's got Genesis 2 and 3 in his mind. Uh, So, uh, one more cross-reference. Again, keep your finger in Ephesians 5, and come with me uh, to Genesis chapter 3. Last cross-reference, page 6 is the page number, and we'll see uh, here uh, why Paul writes as he does in Ephesians 5. Genesis chapter 3 and verse 16, right at the top of page 6 on the left-hand corner there. Andrew, this is uh, what uh, the Lord God says to Eve uh, when he is bringing the curse upon the world. Uh, because of uh, their sin. He says to her, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. With pain you'll give birth to children. And then this is the key bit for us this morning. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Now when you first read that, the word desire seems a good thing. It doesn't seem like part of a, a fall or a curse at all. What husband doesn't want his wife to desire him? 
Well, don't be fooled. That's not the way the word desire works in Genesis. Desire in Genesis is not a positive thing at all. And you can see that from looking at chapter 4, verse 7. See, in chapter 4, verse 7, here is the Lord talking to Cain. Cain, who was jealous of the sacrifice that his brother Abel gave to the Lord. And the Lord says to Cain, chapter 4, verse 7, if you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It there's the word, it desires to have you, but you must master it. Now, every real Christian knows that sin crouches at our door and desires to have us, and now we must struggle to master it. That's a constant in the Christian life, isn't it? Sin desiring to master me, me desperately trying to overcome it. That's the way the word desire is used in Genesis. Sin wants to desire you, you want to control it. And with that understanding, look back again at chapter 3, verse 16. Your desire will be for your husband. You'll try to control him. And in response, verse 16, he will rule over you. You see what this is telling us? Because of the fall, it will no longer come naturally in marriage to reflect the relationship between Christ and the church. Because of the fall, the danger in every marriage is that it degenerates into an unholy power struggle. Him wanting to dominate her, her wanting to rule him, two people at each other's throats. That's exactly what you see in marriages that have gone stale. He's down the pub moaning about her indoors and when he finally gets home, she's waiting to bash him over, with, over the head with the proverbial rolling pin. The effect of the curse, you see, of the fall. That's the world we live in. Naturally, that's the way marriages will go to a greater or lesser extent. And so Paul is saying Christian marriage should reverse the curse. See, back in Ephesians chapter 5 now. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22. Wives submit, verse 25, husbands love. Do you see, it's not a relationship where she wants to master him and where he wants to rule her not nagging each other, but him loving her and her happily submitting to the one who will love her always with her best interests at heart. That's Christian marriage. See how he's reversing the curse? And that indeed is how we really understand verse 21. See, we submit to one another by wives submitting and not mastering and by husbands loving and not ruling. So let's look at the detail. Verse 22. Wives, rather than dominate him, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the saviour. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Submit as Christians submit to Christ. As a Christian, as a, as a church family... Do we have any problem submitting to Jesus? Well, of course, we're sinful. We're always struggling to obey. But in principle, I want to submit to Jesus. I take it we do as a church family want to do what he says. The principle is there. I want to do that. Because, verse 23, he is the saviour. He saved me. He died for me as we take bread and wine in a moment. There is our motivation for the Christian life. Jesus died for me. What can I do for you, Lord? I'll do anything for you, Lord. I'll submit to you. 
So I'll submit to him because he's the saviour. I'll submit to him also because he is the Christ, verse 23, the king and the head of the church. So you see, Paul says wives should submit to their husbands as a declaration to the world of the attitude we, the church, has towards Jesus our saviour and king. Wives submit. And then secondly, husbands love. How did Christ love the church? Verse 25, he gave himself for her, dying for her, to make her holy, verse 26, to cleanse her, verse 26, to present her to himself as a radiant church, verse 27, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. Now, Christian husband, do you see how everything that Jesus did was for our benefit? to save us, to cleanse us, to purify us, to make us radiant. What a wonderful Lord. And that then is how we're to love our wives. That actually is what love is, doing things for her benefit and for her well-being. Christ gave himself up for the church, but I meet Christian men who don't expect anything to change when they get married. They're going to live their life the way they always have, work the same long hours, spend time with the boys, insist on having the football on. That's not giving yourself up, that's not love, that's just selfishness. The Bible never encourages that and this passage certainly doesn't. Do you see it here? This passage that has such a bad press never encourages that sort of attitude. Christian husband, we are called to die for our wives in verse 25 as Jesus died for us. Now, I reckon it's very easy to be ever so macho about this, for us uh, husbands to puff our chests out and say, yeah, I'd, I'd die for my wife. Sounds good, doesn't it? Of course, we can do it because it's very unlikely ever to happen. We're never going to be asked for to do that. So if this is going to mean anything, it's going to mean be worked out in the everyday things of life. It's no good me saying, I'll die for Caroline and then I won't do my fair share around the house and I won't have anything to do with putting the children to bed and all of that. And Christian husband, remember Genesis chapter 3 tells us that our temptation will be to rule our wives. But here Paul says, oh no, your headship is to be exercised in you making decisions that are always for her benefit. You don't have the right just to say, we're going to do this. We do this for her. And look again at verses 26 and 27. I love these verses. See, Jesus' attitude to the church to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish. See, everything Christ did was to make the church holy, clean and that word in verse 27, radiant. See what it says for us Christian husbands? We're to create an environment where our, in our marriages where our wives can radiate, where they can reach their full potential, where they can be everything that they ought to be. Now, we went to a wedding, some, it was years ago now, and there was a Christian couple getting married. I did the talk, I didn't do the, the, the actual marriage, but I did the talk and we went to the reception afterwards. And it was said of the groom, he allows her to be who she is. He allows her to be even more herself. He brings the best out in her. And Caroline and I remarked, here's a man who knows what it is to love his bride. Now, Christian husband, do you live your life for the benefit of your wife? Do the decisions that you take in the household allow her to radiate, verse 27, to excel, to blossom? That's what Jesus does for us, his people. 
He works to present the church without stain or wrinkle, verse 27. Now, how do we do that? Well, part of it, a very large part of it, is there in verse 26. Jesus washed us with the water of the word. See, Christian husband, we ought to take the lead with teaching our wives the Bible. Let me ask you, do you lead the household in that way? See, generally and sadly in my experience, it's the wives who take the lead when it comes to growing in godliness and in Christian understanding in the home. And we've got to start standing up and, and being counted and saying, that's my job. Not, not, not pushing her out, but saying to myself, that's my job. I should be doing that. See, Christian men, we need to think of our wives as we think of our own body, says Paul here in verse 28. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. I took a wedding here yesterday. Lovely occasion. As I declared that they were married, they were now one flesh. They'd become one. What if you see your marriage like that? Uh, Husband, do you see your wife as your body, part of your body? Then love her as you would your body. Your body needs to last your lifetime. You must make sure it's in good shape. Don't abuse it or misuse it. So, Christian husband, your wife needs to last your lifetime. Treat her well. Be sure she's in good shape, not only physically, but emotionally and spiritually. Don't abuse her or misuse her. See, that's what this passage is saying. This passage that people seem to get in such a do about because it talks about wives submitting. It's wonderfully loving towards the wife, isn't it? Do you see how there's nothing in this passage that allows Christian husbands to be bully boys? Nothing at all. Verse 33 is the summary. Uh, However, each one of you should love his wife as he loves himself and the wife must respect her husband. Love and respect. Those are the hallmarks of a godly marriage, aren't they? So let me encourage you, if you're married here today, to live out that in private and in public. At home. Remember, the way we live will be the model that our children are most likely to follow. They will treat their spouses as they see us treat ours. Do they see love and respect at home? And in public, there are a few things worse in marriage than Christian couples who put each other down in public. You know, going to dinner parties where one is trying to score points off the other. It is horrible. And apart from being cruel and hurtful, remember the big picture? To live like that is a terrible witness because your marriage is meant to reflect the relationship between Christ and the church. Does Jesus put his his church down? Does he get cheap laughs at the church's expense? So don't do it to your, your spouse then. See, look at Christian marriages where couples love and respect each other, where they are wonderfully in love with each other. Think of those marriages and you have a magnificent picture of the relationship between Jesus and his people. And so that raises the question for all of us as Christians, is that what our relationship with Jesus is like? That's how it's meant to be. How's it going? Do you just enjoy being in his presence? Is he the love of your life? Uh, Let me say to the unbeliever, is that how you understand the Christian life? Jesus loves you. He's laid down his life for you. You'll see that as we take communion. 
He wants you to know the most wonderful and intimate relationship with him where you will flourish and reach your full potential as a human being. He's not trying to make it hard for you with rules and regulations. Quite the opposite. He's trying to make you blossom. Sometimes I ask people, are you a committed Christian? They reply, I think so, or I'm trying to be. Now do you see how peculiar that is in the light of this? If I were to ask you, are you married? And you were to say, I think so, or I'm trying to be, then I would say, you need more help than I can give you. (laughs) Are you married? The answer is yes or no. Let me ask you here today, are you a committed Christian? It's like being married. The answer is either yes or no. It's not I'm trying to be. Have you started with Jesus yet? It's yes or no. And look, he's ready to to start with you. How do I know that he's so ready to start with you? Because he died on the cross. As he died on the cross, he died for you. And on that first Good Friday, it's as if he was making a vow. Saviour, will you take this sinner... Will you love them, comfort them, honour and protect them and forsaking all others, be faithful to them? And as Jesus died on the cross, it's as if he said, I will. See, he's ready to start with you. Are you ready to start with him? Because now he asks us today, and some of you will know he's asking you this this morning, sinner, will you take the Saviour? Will you love him, honour him? And forsaking all others, be faithful to him as long as you live? I wonder if you've ever said, I will. That's how you start the Christian life. I will. Hundreds of us here have said it. For me, it was on the 25th of March, 1983. I remember it as I remember my wedding anniversary, and I do remember my wedding anniversary. Have you ever said, I will, to Jesus? Today could be the day. Why not? Or maybe you're not sure yet. That's okay. No one ever rushed into marriage. Don't rush into following Jesus. Look into it. And I'd encourage you to think about coming on the Christianity Explored course on the 14th of October. Start looking into these things and begin a most intimate, loving, glorious relationship with Jesus that can be matched by no other relationship on earth. Well, let's turn to pray. And uh, Jonathan Norgate is now going to lead us in our prayers.